0: Hey, Taylor. Jason here. Enjoyed your latest episode. Sorry real life is starting to creep up on you. It happens. It's definitely happened to me in the past. Um, Actually, (laughs) you know, the the advantage of convalescing after surgery, being stuck at home, off work for a month, is that um, you you have plenty of time for gaming, right? So, I, but yeah, there are plenty of times work's gotten in my way. As far as OSR October, I am not going to be that prolific with what I do with it. Um, I'm a not primarily an OSR guy, to be honest, but I am going to support support it. I think there's a lot of good in the OSR that needs to be pointed out, and the OSR definitely gets put in a bad light because people like to retweet things from certain people. As in, you know, just because somebody says something doesn't mean everybody has to talk about it. So it's as much a fault of the non-OSR people that the OSR has this bad thing connotation as anybody else. Um, Act more of their fault because they're the ones that continually talk about it and share it with everybody, right? But anyway, it, it, on the positive side, we have some things coming up on Cerebrivore that are going to be OSR adjacent. There's a talk coming up between yourself and Daniel Bandit's Keep that's coming out as so. I don't know when your next episode's coming out, but that talk will be published on the 30th of September, where you guys talk about chainmail and OD&D. So that's kind of OSR-wise, OSR stuff, and I'll be doing OSR stuff sporadically throughout the month as well. We know Rob over um, down in the heap is going to be participating. Kevin over the red cap is going to be participating. So we're going to have a fair amount of things out there. The key is getting the word out, and I don't know, since you're our social media person, maybe if you can retweet all of our efforts as they come out, that would be super helpful. But thank you very much for all that you're doing. And I know it's tough with real life to break out time for gaming stuff, but it's definitely appreciated. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you soon. And stay safe down there with the hurricane. Oh, by the way, GrogCon is happening. Um, I'll talk about it in my next show. It's going to be greatly reduced because a lot of us couldn't get there. Me because of surgery, but a lot of people's flights were canceled and things because of the hurricane. But they are still planning on running GrogCon. So if anybody's close to Orlando wants to check that out, they still have a chance to do so. Anyhow, take care. Talk to you soon.
1: As you might have figured out, dear listener, that was a fairly old message, and I appreciate, Jason. uh, Thank you for calling in. Now, a couple updates since that message. Jason has recovered from his convalescence. He's been on the mic and on the dice, and that's the important part, isn't it? Uh, Additionally, uh, we did. I did try to retweet or po- repost or share as much of the uh, OSR October stuff as I could, including kind of posting links in places. I, I spammed Discord and Twitter a lot. I did not spam uh, MeWe or Facebook as much. I just. I don't know. Is this? Is it strange? Some environments, some forums, seem conducive to dumping boatloads of content out on and others just don't and i don't know i don't know why that is maybe it's just short form so places where you're likely to spend less time consuming individual media i feel no guilt dumping boatloads of media but then in other places where you spend a little bit more time or where my brain says i think i would spend a little more time uh more long form then i feel guilty blasting stuff because I guess it's it's a fire hose and I didn't uh... OSR October went really well and I think I'd like to do it again so I think I've said that before and we will leave it at that. We'll see we'll see where we where we spam it. Regarding the hurricane I did in fact survive. Humorously there was a mandatory evacuation on my house and my wife and I were planning on ignoring it and Forgive me if I've uh, screwed this up. So what we did was we had packed up just in case the storm changed course. But at the time, it looked like it was going to be a nothing burger in our neck of the woods. Now, it did do some significant damage to South and Central Florida, but in North Florida, not so much. And uh, so what we ended up doing, we packed the car just in case, planned to uh, hang out and just weather the storm and then went over to my uncle's to do uh dinner on the way to my uncle's house the starter on my vehicle blow blew out so we i stopped i got gas car would not start Toad got had to call a tow. hanging out in the car doing call-ins to some other podcasts for <laughs> for an hour and um Then we ended uh, I got my uncle came out and picked up the twins So it was just me in the car waiting for a tow the tow eventually got there hauled me out to Goodyear Which was closed for the hurricane So that is the story of so I was very glad that we had packed our stuff my uncle came out got us again We packed it we took the stuff out of the car took it over to his house because we're maybe half an hour 45 minutes away And we just so we ended up spending the weekend at his house Um, Like I said, we did not intend to evacuate, but we did because the starter on my car decided we did not need to go home. Now, I'm uh, broadcasting from the other car, so I cannot vouch personally, but I can tell you that that car is back in business. We would go on to take that car up to North Carolina, and in retrospect, I think um, I'm grateful what happened happened because I would much rather have had a starter go bad on me minutes from family than, you know, an hour or two hours out of town, however long I would have gone before I stopped for gas on that trip. Last update for my response to this here message. The cerebravore episode between me, Daniel, and Jason talking about Chainmail did in fact drop. According to Jason, that was one of the most popular episodes. There's a lot of interest in Chainmail. How is it different? How is it? Uh, how can it be fresh uh, in a game that has largely felt similar for 50 years? And at the same time, how can you use it to build your domain play. How can you do it to have those mass engagements that uh, everyone seems to enjoy on occasion and show up in the literature all the time, but hard to bring to the table. So bringing that out, a new collaboration has occurred. Yesterday, as of the this recording, yesterday morning, Daniel, Jason, and I sat back together for round two And if Jason is to be believed, that episode should air on the 30th of December. So, if you want to hear those back-to-back, head out to the Cerebivore channel. I'll try to link it in the show notes. And head over to September 30 for episode 1 and December 30 for episode 2 of The Chainmail Chronicles with Daniel, Taylor, and Jason. Thanks for calling in, my man, and hopefully I will be able to address these uh, messages more rapidly going forward.
2: Hey Taylor, Kevin calling in from Recapped Podcast. Just finished listening to your first episode of the OSR October uh, series of of, uh, episodes, and wanted to say I really enjoyed it. Um, I agree with you on pretty much everything you put out there with regards to keeping things open for interpretation and not being... Lock down to uh, to the rules, being a slave to the rules rather than you know, reacting to the situation that's taking place. Um, I also feel like the term rules light has become a little bit nebulous in what it really is. I don't think you can get too many people to agree exactly what rules light means. Um, I had somebody recently on Reddit I was having a conversation with that tried to say that rules light and procedure heavy could be describing the same game and I kind of felt that was a little bit of a contradictory term. Um, in place there, but um, definitely uh, having the ability to react and and the the GM being a fair arbiter of the rules is important. Anyway, great job.
1: Yeah, that is a, a little weird. What is a procedure, if not a rule, a mechanism to accomplish something? I will admit, I have a bit of a bad habit. If I see the word rules light as an advertisement for a game, I tend to skip that game. Because in recent vintage, Rules Light is code for I didn't think this through enough to make a complete game. Now, there's nothing wrong with having purpose-driven or focus games. If you want to play a naval combat game and there aren't rules for batteries on the side of a fortress, that's fine. The game is about naval combat. But don't sell the game as a Rules Light role-playing game for the Caribbean uh, in the Age of Sail if all you have is, you know, naval combat. Part of that may be a consequence of the golden age of publishing that we're in. It's very easy to put stuff out. It's very easy to create a game, to get art put together, to do the layout, and then put it in a place where other people can consume it. That's a wonderful thing because it puts a lot of stuff on the shelf. It gets a lot of ideas out and about, and it does not allow a central authority to say, no, you can't make this. But an un. Uh, kind of an ineluctable consequence of the freedom of publishing, the prolificness of this press, is not all ideas are good ideas. And even just thinking back to the decisions that I've made in my life, most of my ideas are bad ideas. (laughs) And the, uh, the difference between success and failure is taking the good ideas and then having the gumption to cut the bad ideas away from them so that you have a a full-fledged and uh, thought through effective product. And that's not just games, that's life. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. I'm glad that you agreed. Uh, Kind of spitting out some truth in that one. I'm I'm big on... uh, allowing the table to take directions that we may not have taken uh, under more stringent rule sets. And moreover, this kills the rules lawyer. The biggest downer for me at the table is when people start arguing over the rules, when it nothing is more immersion breaking than having to look something up in the middle of the game and having multiple people look it up or argue about it and, and yeah, I don't, like, I don't like the legalistic aspect of the Mother May I game. I don't like the Mother May I game anyway, but anyway. Again, like I said, I'm going off on a tangent. Thank you for calling in, and thank you for the uh, episodes you had put out. I know I didn't call in, but uh, I may get to start up uh, as, the, uh, as the other episodes slow down.
3: Yo, Taylor, been enjoying your OSR October episodes. Just Thank got you. finished listening to your latest one on player skill, character skill. And right. yeah, man, I just just a couple things <laughs> you kept calling the dungeon master of the 3.5 a referee yes they're I do. not a referee they're a dungeon master this is true playing 3.5 of course you got you me you know folks playing bx and od and d and all that stuff want to be called a referee i think they're dungeon masters know. then too, it's something i noticed but yeah that that situation you described that one, you should have been getting some penalties from wearing full plate. Oh, I did. Because I'm pretty sure in 3.5. I know in Pathfinder, yeah, it's, I think I'm it's almost five. positive in 3.5. Armor, yeah, different armor it does. I just a, give you had a. I had a plus four strength bonus like And jumping. multiple ranks in it. So there is, should have been wearing. a penalty there just for the yeah, like armor right. you're wearing. It also makes total sense that a monk would be able to make that jump no problem. That's That's sort of what monks do, right? It is. It's um, one of the things. And like the last thing, that situation that could happen in any game (laughs) that's not dependent on it being a quote unquote modern game though i don't know that a game that's over 20 years old could be considered modern but um well cars are modern. yeah that could have that has nothing to do with like an osr game or a modern game that's just
4: it's kind of a spirit the dungeon
3: master so yeah i don't know man i just wanted to point that out Uh, But, yeah, really enjoying the episode. Absolutely. coming, dude. Talk to you soon. Peace out. Yep,
1: thanks for calling in. And hopefully this uh, talking over joke is still funny.
4: Hey, Taylor, this is James Shields with Grazing Mace, and uh, I wanted to ask you about player mapping after your recent podcast about it. Uh, Does that uh, ever bog down the play? I kind of... Remember some people trying to map out games and uh the, they would uh, often pause the the narrative or 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 so forth and to make sure they're getting all the, the exact details and and how much do you abstract in the uh, the explanation to the to the player who's trying to map and then at what point does that bleed over into uh, metagaming because Rarely is an adventurer going to be plotting down. This is exactly, you know, measuring out this is 5 by by 10. This is 10 by 5, and these hallways are just so wide.
1: Does mapping interrupt play? I don't think it's possible because mapping is part of play. That would be akin to saying, does going uh, to jail for speeding interrupt the play of Monopoly. No, because although it does kind of change your turn and end your turn, it is part of the game. It's part of the assumption. So whenever I play in a game, I tend to be the mapper because I enjoy doing that kind of thing. Whenever I run a game, I try to describe in succinct detail what uh, the room looks like to allow mapping of the game. And it kind of falls into two categories because on the one hand, If you're playing in a virtual tabletop, uh, or if you're playing with dry erase, wet erase minis, then you can draw it on the table. You can provide it on the virtual tabletop, and then the mapper sees what's on there, and they're able to sketch it very quickly. uh, Then, of course, with the wet erase, you have to uh, erase it as you go uh, to simulate the torchlight, or on the VTT, you have the dynamic lighting aspect of it. Next, does it interrupt the narrative? I don't know. When in a mapping situation, I tend not to be narrating. There's two ways that you can kind of interpret that, because on the one hand, what is the narrative? The emergent narrative is the story that's being told after the fact. The adventure that we had transcribed into a uh, memory in that sense no it doesn't because again we just map as part of play we are figuring out where we are and then we'll do the next thing however if you approach narrative from a more RP aspect which I think a lot of people do they think about in they think about narration in terms of the narrative where your exp- its exposition and in that case, That doesn't happen a lot in the games I've been running lately uh, just because I don't have time to kind of devote to it and I've gotten rusty on the RP part but in historical games you in a situation where you're doing that expository stuff it's not the same situation where you would do the mapping. So if I'm role playing if I'm interacting with a non-player character trying to get information out of them. We've already established where we are. Typically, we won't even be in a dungeon. If you're in a dungeon interacting with a monster and you've done well on the reaction, you're trying to convince them of something, you've already effectively established your location so the mapping will have already been done. So in that sense, they tend not to overlap, in my experience, uh, based on those two interpretations of how you could take that question. Can mapping slow down play? Yes. Especially early on, you have to kind of establish a common lingo, a common um, cadence with your mapper. You ha- uh, so, for example, if I say a hall extends ten feet before branching left, what does that mean? Are there ten feet of walls on either side, and then further ten feet where you see it turning, or is there ten feet on my right side, five feet on my uh, five feet on my left, and then it goes north that way? So. You have to kind of establish those conventions. There was a video recently I will link it uh, from the GFC YouTube channel where he talks about his mechanism for, for accomplishing that which is a, it's a fine system. I don't uh, I wasn't as excited about that video as I was about some of his previous ones but it's still a great video it's still a great idea and it, it shows how he established the cadence and that works for geometric style dungeons. Now, in most rooms, most rooms that are shapes, I can give a shape and a diameter, and um, players tend to figure it out, Uh, caves are the only one that's kind of a problem. In caves, you have to be... um, You have to be more abstract, you have to be willing to accept that your map as the player is not going to match the DM's map, just because it's not. uh, It is impossible to describe the oscillating and natural environs. You just have to accept, okay, this this area is ovaloid, approximately 50 feet by 30 feet in the center, and go with it. Uh, Potentially even mapping as a point to point, rather than trying to graph it out. And there's something too. What is the purpose of the player map? The purpose of the player map is so you know where you are and you can escape or get back if you need to. So why not just make it point to point? Why do we need to have exact dimensions in a player map? Depends on, uh, I guess, what the player's going for. So there's there's probably a whole episode on whether or not a map should match at the end. Good thinking. Good call.
4: And then I was also thinking of you know, would you as a game master even allow players to buy maps um, or maybe maybe partially filled maps or uh, or whatnot, from previous adventures who had gone and, and delved through uh, the dungeons or so forth and and even with that how much could you do that 30 30 30 of the rumor table uh, but in a map form I think that would be fun.
1: Or, player to player. So what if Group A went through a dungeon and mapped, and then, uh, having taken some losses, maybe not gotten as much treasure as they wanted, offered to sell a copy of their map to Group B, a different uh, set of players and adventurers. How cool would that be?
4: Uh, perhaps the the more money that they're willing to uh, to um, spend on a map would would indicate how accurate uh uh the map they receive is Uh, things along along that along that line that would be fun so um those are my questions i think that one of your more recent podcasts actually answered my question about wanting to play multiple characters so i look forward to to that response thank you so much bye a
1: note for uh listeners Uh, James had actually graced me with about two dozen messages having discovered the podcast and looked through some of the back catalog. And James, I know in one of those messages you mentioned that uh, I'm not obliged to answer or post, but I do have uh, something on my anchor, the James episode, where I added all of them so I could listen to them uh, in sequence. So I do plan on working my way through them, uh, trying to group them, in kind with uh, some other, you know, some other calls or some other conversations about the subject. Regarding buying maps from non player characters, that might be interesting. I know I have done it once or twice. Generally, the maps that my players have gotten from non-player characters have not been dungeon maps, but I don't know if that is because I'm averse to the idea or more, that's just how it happened. I think my players didn't think about it and didn't ask about it, so I didn't ever bring it up. They've gotten a bunch of maps for wildernesses. They've gotten treasure maps that lead them to adventures, some of which were good, some of which were bad, some of which were indifferent. And absolutely, that rule of thirds, uh, and this is a reference to something I mentioned on the episode with Rick Stump and on a blog post where I recently defined how I do that. Uh, But the moral of the story, applying the uncertainty principle would be uh, would be pretty interesting. And so having uh, a map that gives you more or less detail based on how much you paid for it. Uh, also, how hard was it to come across the source of the map? Did you have to earn your way into to the good graces of a guild? Uh, that's uh, lots and lots of opportunity for interesting adventure there. So I'm going to have to... Uh, I'm going to have to maybe set up a map broker. <laughs> set up a map broker in my next campaign. We'll see See how that runs. Thank you for calling in, and thank you for the other calls, because like I said, I intend to, to work my way through them.
0: Hey, Taylor, interesting enough, both you and Pink Phantom did rulings over rules slightly differently today, which is good. I think the, the key thing with rulings over rules is, and the key thing to explain to people that are wary of it, is that it's consistent. So, rules can't cover every eventuality, but once the DM makes a ruling, when the exact same situation comes up, they're going to treat it the same in the future, and that consistency in those rulings is what allows it to be, quote-unquote, fair, right? So, the the normal worry about rulings over rules, of course, is that the DM's just going to make up whatever he wants each time, and it's going to be adjudicated differently for each player, and it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be unbalanced, and, bias towards players the GM likes or something like that. But a a good DM is going to, once they have to make a ruling, because the rules don't cover a situation, they'll consist now, after you make a ruling, it's okay for a DM to talk with the players after the game and say hey, maybe we should have done it this way. But once they settle into a ruling that they're happy with and everybody's you know, that works for the group, then they're going to consistently use that version of the ruling from then on out. So, great podcast, looking forward to the next one.
1: Absolutely and a ruling is where house rules should come from a house rule is nothing more than a ruling that has come up been applied honed through experience and then written into the margin to cover the scenario now interestingly enough thinking about the editions, third edition is probably one of the most complicated of the D&D editions. Now 1e, AD&D, gets a little bit of flack from inside and outside the OSR community, uh, either from people from newer editions who are put off by disparate subsystems or the Gygaxian pros, uh, or from within the OSR sphere by people who are more attuned to the basic lines as being complex. But in truth, it's not that complex. Anything that requires calculation typically can be calculated in advance and written down for future reference. And Like I mentioned, its core is, is fairly simple. You just have your disparate systems. Most of the rules are DM facing and come up situationally. It's not that bad. Now, I will admit, I am not an ad guy. My experience in OSR context has been primarily with the basic line or with the original edition. But, I do have the AD&D books. I have been trying to make my way through them over time and I can I played a lot of 3rd edition when it was around. And based on the splats, based on the synergies and based on the build game, based on having a rule for every situation, 3E in my opinion is more complicated. And why do I bring this up? 3E was a reaction to exactly what you're talking about. If rulings over rules means I do what I want. Uh, then you get situations where much like XP re- rewards for roleplay, which I don't know did I do an episode on that? I should do an episode on that. XP rewards for roleplay is rife for having uh, favorites. People who make the DM laugh get XP rewards. And that's that's not good. That well, if I mean if your table's happy with that, then sure, but I don't like that, that that bothers me, and I think it detracts from the overall experience. In the same sense, 3rd Edition, when it came out, was in response to the assumption that the referee was adversarial and was out to get you, and they needed to have this book between the ref and the player so as to be fair, to protect the player. which honestly, that is more indicative of a dysfunctional relationship than it is a dysfunctional game. But I'm going off on a rant there, and uh, I probably ought to re-listen to my old episode to see if I covered any old familiar ground. Thanks for the call.
0: Hey Taylor, Jason here. I'm a big fan of thinking outside your character sheet. Um, I don't I I won't comment on your story, but I I will say that, you know, that sounds like something could happen in any system, even an OSR game. But as far as the character sheet goes, yeah, I try to... Even, like, I've just joined a 5e game. I'm so sorry. And my character's... My ranger has, is doing things that have nothing to do with this character sheet. And it's working out fine. So I think that's a group thing, not a system thing. But that goes back to the OSR as a mindset thing, right? And I think you can take that OSR mindset into other games. As a GM, you can take it into other games by designing problems, not solutions. And as players, you can take it into other games by thinking outside your character sheet. And if you end up with a group where where you've joined a group and the GM doesn't let you think outside your character sheet, I think you, after the session, not during the session, but after the session, you have a talk about it. And if they're not open to changing, then you, you just have to weigh whether you want to play with that group or not. And if, if those are your friends and you enjoy hanging out with them, then may, maybe you play that game anyway and, and enjoy it. And, you know, and if... You don't, then maybe you move on to a different game. But, but I, don't, I, I think this player skill thing is a great example of how OSR can be, you can take lessons from the OSR and use it in any RPG out there. And I think that's a super positive thing because it lets us play all kinds of games and, and we don't have to stay in our echo chambers, which is always a bad thing. So thank you and keep up the great work. This is primarily
1: true. Rulings over rules is a feature in multiple genres of gaming. And I think Joe actually uh, accused me of similar, so if I was smart, I would have put this message next to Joe's message, but I'm not <laughs> I'm winging it today. But where I was going with that, that's one of the reasons why a, I do agree with you. Thinking outside the character sheet makes any game, regardless of genre, more interesting, because that separates the role-playing game from the board game. But B, that's also why I tend to adhere to a multi-fold definition of what OSR implies. I think uh, Matt Finch is, like I think you said at one point, he's more of a tonal guy than he is a rules guy, but then again he also broke away from Frog God so that he could pursue swords and wizardry after, coincidentally, Frog God started producing everything for 5e. Um, What a coincidence, but I will not speculate. For me, OSR implies two things, both a tonal and mechanical fidelity the tonal is what we're talking about here the play style is what we're talking about here and it's very easy for a game to achieve that tone i've played games i've run games that have achieved the tone and that's why on the discord i say that it's okay f- this is the cwr discord that it's okay for adjacent materials to show up because the tone a lot of the time is what we care about at the same time mechanical fidelity that becomes important for True OSR, uh, spelled with a V, <laughs> because you have 40 years of stuff to lean on. Is that you can glean from a huge history uh, that you can pull into your game. So anyway, I think I did actually go. Like I said, I, I distinctly remember chatting about this at one point, uh, or not chatting, but ranting. So I, I think I made another OctoSR episode about uh, what is the benefit of mechanical fidelity. But yeah, so listen uh, listen on listener or er, er, listen in the past <laughs> if you hadn't already because yes you can make a game that is tonally osr but not mechanically that's why osr has a stricter requirement set on this channel at least thanks for calling in And that wraps up another episode of the Cleric's Wear Ringmail podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the "you can totally steal this" license. As always, sound effects are from Mixkit.co used under the Mixkit royalty-free license. Segments recorded in a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device. And Cleric's Wear Ringmail assumes no liability in the consumption or distribution of the podcast. By listening. All parties agree. Any parties with questions can reach out on the Ringmail blog. Parties who are dissatisfied can go suck an egg. Thank you for listening, everybody, and delve on.